and the rest of you, I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 this morning. I'd like you to follow with me, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we open your word this morning and consider uh, Peter's message to a church that was in a difficult situation, I pray that you would speak that message to us today. Father, I want to ask that we would be doers of the Word and not hearers only. That we would be willing to come and gaze into Your Word as into a mirror and be willing to see what is really there in our lives. And allow Your Holy Spirit to convince and convict and transform us God, I pray that your word today would change us, that we would go out of this place different than we came in because you have spoken to us by your spirit. And so, Lord, I ask you to make the word powerful in our lives today, that we might be obedient to you in all respects. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. Peter's writing to a church, as some of you may recall from our previous study some years ago, he's writing to a church or a group of churches that are living in a time when um, both Jews and Christians are falling out of favor with Rome. It's not a good time for them to be living uh, from the standpoint that um, Rome has about had it with Jerusalem. And they're they're about ready to squash it. And in fact, in A.D. 70 or so, Jerusalem fell and was never again a, a, a nation to be reckoned with until after World War II. But also the church was in a precarious position because it had been rejected by both the Jewish people and by the Roman Empire. It had fallen out of favor in both directions. And believers, Christians, were experiencing all kind of opposition and difficulty. 
And so Peter is writing to a group of people who are stressed. And, um, you know, when trouble comes on us, we have a tendency to turn inward, don't we? Uh, when, when our lives are falling apart, we tend to look at ourselves and think about uh, what's going on with me. And we kind of forget about what's happening with people around us uh, in other places because we're, we're focused on our own problems. That's the tendency. And um, that was kind of what was happening with these believers. You find the same kind of message in the book of Hebrews to the same people and also in James that they would deal with those issues among them where they are becoming self-centered. And so as Peter writes this, he reminds the church that we're, they're running out of time. And so are we. Notice what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, it felt like that from their perspective. Life as they knew it was changing, and it wasn't for the better. And uh, that sense of the imminency of the return of Christ was so prevalent among the New Testament believers because their lives were encountering such difficulty. What they did not know, though, and what we know now with 2,000 years of church history uh, behind us, is that the end is closer than it was even then. What looked so imminent in those days, we can see through the history of the church and of the world, is even more imminent today. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore we need to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Basically what Peter's saying is, don't lose it. When life gets tough and things are falling apart around you and the world's falling apart around you, don't lose it. Don't lose your mind. Don't, uh, don't stress out. Pull it together. Get sober in your attention. Um, begin to think clearly about what's going on so that you can give yourselves to the purpose of prayer. The church is in the world as salt and light. We're here for a reason. And it's not just about us. It's about bringing a light to a a world that is without hope and without Christ. And Peter says to them, you've got to look outward and you've got to look upward. You can't just get uh, totally focused on your own situation, but develop a sober mind and a sober spirit so that you can look out and see the things that are happening around you with a sense of prophetic understanding. And as we get into this passage, we're going to see that Peter focuses on the word love, but I I want to point out the negative before I get to the positive. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, as His disciples were asking Him about the end times, He said, in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. Um, that's another way of saying that narcissism will prevail. Narcissism, by a definition of psychologists, is uh, a disorder, a mental disorder, where a person is entirely focused on themselves. They believe that the world revolves around them. They're the center of the universe. 
everything and everyone exists for their benefit and their happiness and their satisfaction, and, and they really feel that uh, the world owes them uh, a living and owes them joy and happiness in life, and that it, it's there to serve their pleasure. Now, that's the extreme, but Jesus is saying that as we come closer and closer to the end times, more and more people are going to have that perspective. It's simply me first. And so the love of many will grow cold. Love, love is, by definition, is something that you have to extend beyond yourself to another person. If the only person you love is you, then your love for others has grown cold. Paul puts it in even perhaps more clear terms in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says in those early verses there, he says, in the end times, as the last times approach, people are going to be haters of God, lovers of pleasure, haters of parents, haters of one another. It's going to come a time when people are so focused on themselves that they hate even their own children. They hate their marriage partners. They, they hate everything around them except themselves. They're totally and completely focused on themselves. Does anyone deny that we're living in a time when that is becoming prevalent? That we're living in a time when the love of many is growing cold. Do you see it on the news all the time? I mean, parents killing their children is not a rare occurrence. People walking into somewhere and shooting the place up is not a rare occurrence. People who are saying in one way or another, I'm the only one that counts here, I matter the most, what I want is the most important thing in the planet, and I don't care who dies to get my way, is an attitude. In the midst of that, Peter says, we have a message that the world needs to hear. We have a message that needs to be proclaimed. The message that God loves sinners. That He has given His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have a gospel message to carry to the world. And in a time when sin and lawlessness increase, that message is even more important. But the truth is, that the church will never convince the world of the truth of the gospel merely by rhetoric or by apologetics or by argument. We're not going to win people to the gospel of Jesus Christ by intellectually persuading them that He is the appropriate belief system. In fact, Jesus said that the message that you give of the love of God through me will be authenticated by the way that you love each other. He put it this way, all men will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And one of the things that distinguishes Christ followers from all the other religions of the world is that the other religions are basically moralistic philosophies. They're not all bad moralistic philosophies. Some of them are reasonable. Many of them are reasonable. They offer an alternative 
to make sense out of life and to order it in certain ways. They give respect to culture and all those kinds of things, but in the end they fall short because they fail to take into account that we are truly defective. We're not able to live by a code of ethics because we're broken on the inside. I was uh, I was at a wedding last night, and the best man was giving the toast, and it was a very interesting toast that he gave. I've never heard one quite like it. He said, this gentleman to my right, who was the groom, he said, this gentleman to my right is a better man than I could ever hope to be. In fact, he's a better man than I ever want to be. And I thought, wow, that's putting it bluntly. But that was a frank admission. That, you know, there's just some things I don't want to do. And all other religions and philosophies fail at the point that they cannot change the human heart. We're sick, friends. We're broken. We have a problem. Only the Gospel can fix that problem because it's not a system of beliefs. It's a person who wipes the slate clean and invades our lives with His very presence and changes us by His own power. And Jesus said, people will know that you are My followers by the way you act, not by what you say. It's not that it isn't important that we speak the truth But if we don't speak the truth authenticated by a transformed life, it falls on deaf ears. The way the world will see that the church has Jesus Christ in the midst of it is the way that we demonstrate love for one another. And so, Peter says to this group of churches in verse 8, Above all, isn't that an interesting thing? Assessment of priority. In all the things I've written to you, and all the things I've said to you, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love for one another. When, when life is falling apart around you, that's the most difficult thing to do. Because, as I mentioned, you tend to turn to yourself. And Peter is trying to correct that in them by saying, listen... Get your priorities right. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Be sober and attentive and pay attention. And above all, above all, be fervent in your love for one another. Don't just uh, consider yourself. Consider the people in the fellowship around you. Be fervent in your love. The word fervent here is an interesting uh, word in the original language. It, it uh, kind of sounds like extenos. And it's almost a word that that we would get our word extrude from. It literally means to stretch. The word fervency means to, to pull toward the breaking point, to stretch beyond what you think is possible, to draw it out. And what Peter is saying is you need to stretch. You need to go further than you think you could. You need to give attention to the love that you have for each other in a way that that draws you out beyond yourself 
and stretches you in their direction. Then he says a very interesting thing, and it's something I'm sure many of you have wondered about. It says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. He's talking about a congregation that needs to be manifesting a supernatural love for each other. And he says, love covers a multitude of sins. How many times have you heard that quoted? How many times have you wondered, what in the world are they really talking about? Does it mean we ignore sin? Does it mean we pretend it's not there? Does it mean we don't address problems? No, but Peter's pointing out the fact that our tendency is to pick at one another and find fault. That's our natural inclination as human beings, to pick at each other and to find fault. To observe one another's immature behavior and kind of take a sort of sadistic glee in it. Let me digress for a moment. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was preaching, he talked about all of us being ophthalmologists. And, and doing eye surgery. You recall that part? Well, it has to do with speck removal. He says, you notice a speck in your brother's eye or sister's eye. And you want to go take it out. You think you're qualified. You think you're skilled to do that. And you want to go pick the splinter out of their eye. It's interesting that he didn't tell us not to do that. What he did say was, take the log out of your own eye first. And as many of you have heard me say before, I think there's a reason why that analogy is put the way it is. Because we tend to recognize the splinters that came from our logs. We tend to identify the the little problems in other people that relate to us. I remember very clearly where I was and what I was doing the day that the Holy Spirit opened that Scripture to my understanding. I was sitting in Old Testament class. Dr. McGraw was lecturing. I was a sophomore in college. And there was a guy in the class that just irritated the life out of me. He was obnoxious. He was arrogant. And he was always asking questions. And he just aggravated me. And being a Christian in a college preparing for full-time ministry, I knew that that was not the right attitude. And I needed fixing. So I was praying about that. Because every time I'd go to class and he'd open his mouth, I would get aggravated. And so I was talking to God about that. That's what you're supposed to do, you know, pray for your brother. So I was praying for him and praying about it. And I said, Lord, you've got to show me how to love this guy. Because I don't know how to do that. And as I was praying for him and I was reciting to God all of the irritating things he did, God opened my eyes to the fact that I was guilty as charged of all of them 
Oh, I had dressed mine up with a little more clever public appearance, but the root of it was still there. And what I was seeing was the fact that what I thought I had so cleverly disguised with an air of, you know, gentlemanly civility, and I had neatly packaged it so it was not so obnoxious, this guy is blatantly in my face doing it in front of me, and it's causing me to recognize it. My source of irritation was coming because he was exposing what I thought I had hidden pretty well. And the more I thought about what was going on, the more I realized I was the one that needed the prayer. He didn't bother me so much after that. And I began to focus more on what God needed to do in my life to transform me. And friends, there's a lesson there in that for every one of us. When you find people in the body that aggravate you, one of the questions you need to ask God, very frankly, is, Lord, is there something in my life that they're calling to attention? Are, are they bringing something out in me that you want to put your finger on as a first order of business? Now, that's not 100% true. It is 100% true that we often recognize the specks and the logs, but not every time uh, someone gets under our skin is it our log. I mean, we have to pray that through. Sometimes they remind us of someone else's issues and uh, pain and suffering that we've had in our own lives. You know, when a person takes a course or a training as a professional counselor, uh, they always have to deal with the subject of transference. And um, if you've read anything or heard anything about that, a lot of times people associate it purely with, with kind of a sexuality kind of issue. But transference is far more significant than that. It's whenever you get pulled into another person's emotions in a way that you're identifying either positively or negatively. If they are touching something in your own life that has not been dealt with, and you are suddenly pulled in with great empathy, and you feel for their plight, and you're getting sucked into their viewpoint because of baggage in your own life, you're not being able to be a very effective counselor. By the same token, if they remind you of someone that irritated the liver out of you, and they're pushing your buttons the way that other person pushed your buttons, and now you have a negative reaction, you're still not able to help them. Because all of a sudden you're responding to them. You know, sometimes uh, through the years I've had to remind myself, okay, this is, this is not my mother or this is not this uh, teacher in my life, or this is not that person over there, this is who they are, because they touch something in me that responds. We need to be aware of those things before the Lord, and let Him deal with our unfinished business. And in the process of that, allow the Holy Spirit to be the sanctifier. Friends, we're all broken. We're all under construction. We all need redemption. As, as Ryan prayed this morning in his 
prayer. You are the one, Lord Jesus, who saves us right now. We need saving right now from ourselves. In this moment, we need redemption. We're broken people. We're under construction. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us. And you know what? I don't know what God is doing in your life to make you like Christ. I don't know what He's working on right now. I don't know what part of your life He's put His finger on. He's working on something in my life. He may be working on something different in your life. I can damage the work of God if I go barging in like a bull in a china shop and try to fix you. I need to be prayerful about you. And I need to love you. And I need to welcome you. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with issues. You know, I can't pack all of this into one message, but... You know, Jesus gave clear instruction. If you've got a problem with a brother, go talk to him. Go, go deal with it. Don't harbor it. If it's something you can't shake, go deal with it. And obviously, if you're raising children and they're small, you've got to bring correction into their lives. But we are called to give grace to one another. And in that sense, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sin. It's interesting that he did not say love covers a multitude of idiosyncrasies or love covers a multitude of personality issues. No, he said love covers a multitude of real grievances contrary to the purposes of God. That we are able, by the grace of God, to love each other. In spite of the fact that we are all, by the grace of God, under construction. And then he adds in verse 9, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable without complaint. You ever had anyone that was a guest in your home that just annoyed you to death? And when they left, it was like, man, I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> I remember as a child, sometimes growing up, we would have uh, relatives or family over, and families are interesting entities in and of themselves, but the, the company would leave and it would take about a day or two to clear the air as they did all the buzzing and talking, you know. And, uh, yeah, a lot of complaining. Pardon? Some radar. <laughs> okay. But the word hospitality is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word philoxenos. Philo, Phileo, Philadelphia, you recognize that as brotherly love. Xenos means to be different. And to be hospitable literally means to love difference. To love people who are different without complaining. Oh, there's the kicker. To love people who are different from us without complaining about them, 
to genuinely, with an open heart and an open spirit, receive people who are different. The opposite of philoxenos is xenophobia. That's a word that's become popular in our society. Xenophobia is a fear of differences. It's a rejection of people who are different because we don't want to have anything to do with the threat that they bring to our lives. But philoxenos means that we actually open our hearts and embrace difference. You know, one day we're going to sit at that marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be with Jesus Christ in the church of all the ages. And the book of Revelation tells us that there will be every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And we're going to be sitting with a whole bunch of people who are different from us. They're different color. They come from different nations. They have different languages. They have different backgrounds. They've all been changed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the church now is to be modeling that kind of open-hearted love, welcoming of differences. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that we are to compromise on what are biblical values and standards. You can't accept ungodly behavior or ungodly beliefs. But we need to be able to accept the person I can't say that strong enough. If we don't love each other in the family, how are we going to love unbelievers outside the family? How are we going to love the people in the streets and in the world if we're not able to love them with the love of God? Which does not excuse or accept their sinful behavior, but it values and cherishes them as an individual. The Bible is very clear. There is no other way to heaven. There's no other way to a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. There's no other avenue. You can't get there by any other means. Jesus said, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said very plainly, I am the good shepherd. If anyone tries to climb up by another way, he's a thief and a robber. The book of Acts. The disciples made it clear, there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not because Christians are a bunch of bigots. That's because only Jesus, only Jesus, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, could take our sin to the cross and endure the wrath of God and pay the price. No one else can do that. No one else is qualified. He is the only one. And what a horrible waste and what a horrible tragedy if there was another way to God. There is no other way to God. We cannot compromise the truth. If a person's in a burning building and you're urging them to get out, get out, save yourself, and they say, I don't believe fire's going to hurt me. Oh, well, you're entitled to your beliefs. I'll accept your belief system. That's not loving them. Going in there and grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and hauling them out against their will. That's loving them. I'm not suggesting we evangelize that way. That wouldn't be terribly effective. But you see the point. Loving people who believe a lie and letting them believe a lie and go to hell is not loving them. 
They need to be told the truth in love. But accepting them is another story. Cherishing them, valuing them, because they know if you love them or not. They know that. And Jesus said, this is the thing that's going to make the difference. People are going to look at the church and they're going to see how you love each other and they're going to know I'm present. And then they're going to see how you love them and they're going to know I'm present. We have to speak the truth, but as Paul pointed out in Ephesians 4, we have to speak that truth in love. If we don't speak the truth in love, if we just spout the truth without any compassion... People see right through that. And what's the difference? The thing that authenticates the gospel is the way that we love and care for each other and the way that we love unbelievers. So hospitality is an openness of heart and spirit. And then Peter finally says, as I conclude this morning, and he goes into verse 10, that we have all been given the grace of God, and we really, really need each other. You know, again, and more so as we approach the last times, or perhaps live in a place that is under great duress. Do you know in the whole United States today, do you know what churches have the greatest opportunity to impact with the love of God and the gospel message. The ones in New York. They have the golden opportunity right now. And the ones that will be most effective, we don't like to hear this, but the ones that will be most effective are the ones that have suffered loss themselves. That are in dire straits. That are suffering. I heard a man on the news last night as I was driving back home. I was listening to the radio. He was interviewed, and here's what he said. He said, I've lost my business. I've lost my home. Neither are recoverable. I've lost my whole life. My heart broke for him. First of all, because... I was sad that he had lost everything. But I was even more sad that he perceived that as being his whole life. But you know who will be most effective in reaching him? Someone else who has lost everything. But who knows that they still have eternal life. And they have the presence of God. And they're not thinking about themselves, but they're thinking about him. In his need. You see, Peter said every one of us has been given the grace of God and the gift of God that we can share it in our own unique way. No one else can do what you can do. No one else can love the way you can love. No one else can manifest the character of God the way you can. You have been given something from God. We've all received common grace in that sense. But you have been given a grace of God that reveals some facet of His character. And if you don't manifest that here in this church, if you don't use it, we're missing something. We are missing something. 
You say, I don't know what in the world I could do. I don't have any idea what my gifts are. I don't know how I can serve. I don't know how, how I bless the body with my life. I want to give you a scary challenge. I've already given you one. Next time you want to take a speck out, go home and ask God where the log is. That's your first challenge, okay? Here's your second one. Get with two or three or four people that know you pretty well who are fellow believers, and ask them this question. What is it that I do that makes you see God in me? What am I doing when I make you aware of Jesus Christ? See what they say. You may find out what your spiritual gift is. You may find out what the grace of God is in your life. Because there is some facet of God that comes through you when you love that doesn't come through anyone else in quite the same way. And we need each other. So Peter's admonition is, hang together as a church, be faithful, be consistent, keep your eyes on Christ, recognize the times, be sober and alert and attentive. But above all, Be fervent in your love for each other. This is the distinguishing mark. This is how people will know that you're my followers. That you love each other. Father, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you would bring us to a point of honesty before you. Expose our prejudice, our logs, our petty grievances. Deal with our hearts. Bring us under the Lordship of Christ and surrender to His purposes. And, O Lord, may we be faithful to manifest A love for each other that is in such stark contrast to the way the world lives that people will know that you are present in our midst and be drawn to the light. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.